Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, before we get started, I just got to tell you something. It happened earlier today. I've been waiting for, I think it's been a year and a half to see Clark's darling three and a half year old daughter. And she came to visit the station today. And I'm telling you, the whole rest of the day was pretty much ruined. I kept kind of drifting off and thinking about, you know, how cute she was. And in fact, she did a little um, radio work and you might hear her voice from time to time during one of the breaks. A few of the breaks, I'm hoping. Um, She's a little character. And as I mentioned, she's three and a half. She sat on daddy's lap and uh, said several things that are going to be useful to us. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the uh, six o'clock hour, uh, is it the it's the weather report? Is that right? 630. Okay, at 630, that little voice you hear will be uh, Clark's sweet little daughter. Anyway, it was so fun. I (laughs) I pretty much spent my morning hanging out with her, just watching her romp around. Anyway, you've got a a really sweet family. Your wife, Lisa, was also here, and I thoroughly enjoyed seeing her, too. We don't uh, have the opportunity to be together very often, and so it was really fun. And be sure to thank them both. For making the trip. That was really the highlight of my uh, of my week. I had it on the calendar and I kept thinking, okay, it's two more days. She's coming in another day. <laughs> so she finally came today. So I'm in a pretty good mood. Let me just let's, uh, just say that. Also, we're going to be giving away, speaking of good moods, Michael Jr., the comedian. He's coming to Portland. Well, I should say Gresham. And we're going to give away a pair of tickets. In fact, we're going to give away two pair of tickets today for Michael Jr. So we'll give you a heads up when you have an opportunity to call in to win. Those tickets are on sale, and I would encourage you, if you're planning on going, you need to get him fairly quickly because he's a he's a, a very popular comedian. He does a great job, and it's going to be a very fun evening. And I think some of us just need a good excuse to laugh right about now. Well, the initial estimates from Hurricane Harvey are in, and they dwarf most other hurricanes and tropical storms that we've seen. More than 30,000 people have uh, fled Uh, to Houston shelters, while an untold number of other people have been displaced since it came uh, came ashore on Friday night as a Category 4 hurricane. It's since been downgraded. Uh, The storm's massive size, the destruction uh, it has wrought, is really staggering. $190 billion, Hurricane Harvey's price tag, could dwarf the previous natural disasters in the United States, according to an estimate from the weather uh, firm AccuWeather, in the billions, for example, uh, the superstorm Sandy in October of 2012, that was $65 billion. Hurricane Katrina, 2005, $125 billion. Hurricane Harvey at this point is expected to reach $190 billion. And by the way, the, uh, the flood insurance that people may or may not have had, that is in the billions of dollars um, in debt itself. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of this is is managed and moving forward, whether or not the federal government will uh, come up with other ways to cover the cost, the real costs of people who lose everything in these circumstances. 51.9 inches of rain. Now, we've heard to other 
uh, numbers, but uh, the storm was less than an inch. We're now being told short of breaking the U.S. record for rain dropped by a hurricane or tropical storm, which was set in 1950. That was in Hawaii. Rain totals uh, through 10 a.m. on Wednesday were 51.9 inches. 19 trillion gallons of water. That's how much uh, rain was dumped by Harvey. 19 trillion gallons of rain over southeast uh, Texas. Another 5.5 trillion gallons over Louisiana. That's an awful lot. Uh, Harvey's winds reached Category 4 levels as it came ashore on Friday uh, near Corpus Christi. It's the first time in 56 years that a major hurricane Category 3 or stronger made landfall in Texas. Um, Hurricane um, Edna. Uh, was, what was it, uh, 73 miles an hour. We had, uh, um, well, I won't even go over all of that, but it was a Category 4. Uh, the waters have begun to recede in some places, but scores of acres remain at flood stage. Flood gauge readings as of Thursday morning had uh, much of the, the area still in uh, major flooding with some uh, few areas uh, receding. Uh, the flood damage threatens the financial well-being of thousands. Uh, county percentage changes uh, in uh, flood insurance policies in 2012 to 2017 indicate that fewer people had flood insurance in this area, uh, which, uh, of course, poses some serious problems. And more than 8,700 commercial flights have been canceled to and from Houston's two airports since Friday as a consequence of this storm. Well, the biggest rainstorm in the history of the U.S. mainland made a second landfall on Wednesday on the Gulf Coast, slowly moving away from Houston, dousing southeast Texas and southwest Louisiana. And while Tropical Storm Harvey no longer has the power of the Category 4 hurricane that slammed the Gulf Coast late Friday, it's expected to weaken as it moves north toward Mississippi and Tennessee, According to the National Hurricane Center, they're warning of continued catastrophic and life-threatening flooding. However, the Texas National Guard has made more than 8,500 rescues, and that's just their rescues, not to mention those done by private citizens. 26,000 evacuations, according to Governor Greg Abbott in a news conference yesterday. After activating 14,000 members of the Texas National Guard, he announced that he was seeking an additional 10,000 members from other states. The worst is not yet over in southeast Texas, he said. Already tens of thousands of people in Houston and across southeast Louisiana have had to evacuate their homes, and the death toll has risen to more than 30, including a Houston police officer who drowned in his car while driving to work, or at least making the attempt. A white van containing the bodies of four children and their grandparents was found Wednesday near Green's Bayou uh, in East Houston. And of course, the uh, the list goes on. About 85 miles east of Houston in Beaumont, Texas, a 41-year-old mother and her three-year-old daughter were swept away by high uh, floodwaters after getting uh, out of their car near a flooded freeway, hoping to make it to solid ground. The child clung to its mother for half a mile before police officers and fire and rescue divers spotted them in a canal, plucked them out of the water just uh, before they went under a uh, trestle. The mother died, but the child was in stable condition. Well, since Harvey made landfall on Friday night as a hurricane, some areas around Houston have seen more than 50 inches of rain. And as the rain uh, let up on Wednesday in the nation's fourth largest city, residents were uh, cheered by clearing skies and a bit of sunshine. In fact, it's quite hot and sunny in many places today. Restaurants and shops began to open in areas where they could. In the Montrose neighborhood west of downtown, small groups of neighbors took to rain-slicked streets and boots and sneakers to survey the damage. Some were pleasantly surprised. Others were 
uh, gravely uh, concerned. Even warnings um, from the National Weather Service in Houston and Galveston became less dire. Improving weather conditions to come, they said, it announced after canceling its tropical storm warning and storm surge watch. But many areas still remain impassable. Main highways and other roads were uh, washed out. More than 10,000 people were temporarily homeless in the main at the main shelters in the city's downtown George R. Uh, Brown Convention Center. City officials have asked the Federal Emergency Management Agency for cots and food for an additional 10,000 people. And officials are set to open a shelter at the Toyota Center, a downtown Houston arena. Early today, or rather early Wednesday, Harris County officials warned that a levy protecting the Inverness uh, Forest subdivision in the north part of the county would fail after a portion of its base eroded. A mandatory evacuation of part of the area is in place until 6 p.m. tonight, uh, while crews attempt to shore up the levee and see if uh, that's possible. Thousands of homes west of the downtown area upstream from the Barker and Attics reservoirs flooded after the dam uh, backed up from heavy rainfall, and it goes on and on uh, from there. Well, Harvey's floodwaters are beginning to recede, but uh, with that recession of waters, that, that devastating storm, there are those who's, well... Those who are willing to take advantage of the situation will tell you about scams that are abounding as crooks prey on disaster victims and altruistic Americans. We'll also talk about Houston rescuers who are starting their block-by-block search of homes flooded by Tropical Storm Harvey, hoping to recover uh, living residents and uh, possibly those who did not survive. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Before we move forward, I want to give away our first pair of tickets to um, hear Michael Jr. 1041 The Fish presents a clean comedy night for the whole family. That's coming up on Saturday, September 16th at East Hill Church in Gresham. General admission tickets are $25. Uh, Gold Circle, $40. You can find out more about that at kpdq.com. But that's coming up again on Saturday, the 16th of September, 7 o'clock to 9.30 at East Hill Church. We want to give away a pair of tickets to caller number 5. And the number to call, 1-800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Again, Michael Jr., uh, making the world smile again. No matter where you um, experience this guy's humor on stage, online, one-on-one, you get the same Michael Jr. He's at ease. He's conversational. He's got a great sense of humor, a sense of mischief, uh, with a grasp of real-life culture current scenarios that create uh, lots of laughter. So uh, we're looking forward to... Uh, to featuring a night where people can just enjoy themselves in that way without worrying about it slipping into, you know, areas you're not really interested in. Again, 800-845-2162, caller number five. And we're going to give away another pair in the next hour of the program as well. So listen up for an opportunity if you fail to win a pair right now. Well, Hurricane Harvey's floodwaters are beginning to recede in some places in Houston, and the devastating storm is finally loosening its grip on the Gulf Coast. But there are lots of dangers and hardships that still loom for um, drenched residents in Texas and in Louisiana. As I mentioned earlier this week, for a period of time, there is intense focus on what's happening and what's happened. That focus will fade, but for the people who live in these areas, for many of them, it will take years before the situation created by Hurricane Harvey is resolved. 
thousands remain in shelters across the region. They're waiting news of when uh, or if they can return to their devastated homes and neighborhoods. A series of explosions at a chemical plant and a threat of toxic waste and crude oil seeping into floodwaters have sparked health concerns. State and federal officials are working overtime to get uh, airports, railways, highways up and running. Uh, to uh, pre-Harvey levels. I mean, it's difficult to navigate the city if you can't uh, use its um, its roadways and highways. And then there are the scams targeting both Harvey victims and those looking to donate to relief efforts. Now, scam artists are using the storm, the people's sense of charity, to swindle thousands of dollars from unwitting targets. In order to prevent any more victims, uh, you need to be very careful about uh, who to whom and uh, to what organization you are donating. Uh, there are flood insurance scams. Numerous uh, homeowners and renters throughout Texas and Louisiana, they're getting robocalls that um, inform them that their flood uh, premiums are overdue to make sure that they're covered for any damage from Harvey. The automated calls say policyholders have to pay immediately or risk it all. Um, the FTC advises that anyone concerned about the flood premiums call their insurance agents uh, to avoid um, success on the part of those who are t- seeking to scam. Then there are also the charity scams with Americans all across the country right here, donating millions of dollars to charities, providing relief efforts to victims of Harvey. It should come as no surprise that criminals looking to make a quick buck will prey on those with a benevolent heart. There have been uh, numerous reports of people receiving phone calls, text messages, emails or posts on their social media account that ask for money for Harvey relief Efforts. And while there are a number of legitimate organizations that are helping collect money for Harvey victims, the American Red Cross, Direct Relief, uh, Save the Children, um, uh, Medical Teams International, there are others who are not. It's sometimes hard to determine which charity is real and which is a scam. So stick with the ones you know. The FTC has posted a charity checklist for donors to follow so they don't get bamboozled. You might want to check that out. There are also phishing scams. They're hard to avoid and even harder to trace. Email phishing scams. They've become the con of choice for hackers looking to rip off altruistic Americans, and there are lots of us. These crooks send out messages via email or social media with links to promise to help uh, provide aid um, to the victims of Harvey through you. Instead, these links send you to bogus websites that can pinch your login and credit card information, infect computers with malware, and even uh, steal your identity. The U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team They issued a warning on Monday that noted these uh, phishing scams have cropped up before during previous natural disasters and warning donors to be on the lookout. Again, what you know is better than what you don't know in terms of deciding to whom to give. Crowdfunding scams are also popping up over the last few uh, few years. Crowdfunding has become one of the most popular ways for everybody from cancer patients to new businesses to raise money with sites like GoFundMe and Kickstarter leading the pack. But they could also be used by criminals as a way to bilk people um, donating to a cause only to keep the money for themselves to help prevent that um, prevent their site from being abused by phonies. GoFundMe briefed officials in Texas and Louisiana on the steps the company was taking to ensure that all the funds raised on their site go directly to the place they are supposed to. Also, there are copycat scams similar to the phishing scams. These ploys use the name of uh, or URL that uh, closely resembles that of a well-known charitable organization in order to trick people into thinking it's the real group. So it looks right, it's the right name, but the URL is wrong. The 
FTC is warning donors to double check any URLs, as most websites of legitimate charities end in .org instead of .com. Also, another red flag is groups asking for money transfers, uh, as most legitimate organizations don't solicit these types of donations. So we need to be on our toes, not only so that we don't get scammed, but that the people that desperately need our help will actually get it. Well, firefighters in the nation's fourth largest city began a block-by-block search today of tens of thousands of flooded Houston homes. They're looking for anyone who may have been left behind in floodwaters spawned by Tropical Storm Harvey. Now, the city's assistant, uh, assistant fire chief, rather, Richard Mann, said his department would ensure no people were left behind as officials' death toll uh, from the storm has arisen to at least 31. This block-by-block search... Um, We'll cover a wide area in the southwest part of the city, searching homes believed to have taken on uh, three feet of water or greater. Uh, the search, which is going to use new GPS technology, is expected to take one to two weeks to complete. So uh, this could be uh, quite a challenge. Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena, he said the agency had handled at least 13,000 calls and rescued more than 7,000 victims from the floodwaters. But that, of course, leaves a deficit. As the as of today, the latest survey indicated the storm and floodwaters had caused major damage to more than 37,000 homes, destroyed nearly 7,000, the Texas Department of Public Safety is reporting. In the western part of the city, homeowners near the uh, Barker Reservoir returned to their homes in an effort to rescue their pets from the uh, waterlogged neighborhoods and in a moment captured uh, live two rest uh, two residents rather were successfully reunited with their pets after they were forced to leave them alone on the second floor of their homes for several days due to evacuating quickly from the area those kinds of reunions are taking place but there will also be sadder outcomes as not everyone in the homes are ex- is expected to have survived so uh praying for uh, uh more to be found living than than not Well, Energy Secretary Rick Perry said today that he's releasing 500,000 barrels of crude oil from an emergency stockpile in a bid to prevent gasoline prices from spiking in the wake of disruptions caused by Harvey. Perry said he's uh, authorized immediate shipments of crude to the Phillips 66 refinery in Lake Charles, Louisiana. The oil is going to be replenished under an exchange arrangement similar to a loan. The Energy Department will review other requests for oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, an emergency stockpile that guards against supply disruptions. The Petroleum Reserve was created in the wake of the 1970s Arab oil embargo. The reserve stores oil at four underground sites in Texas and Louisiana. Gasoline prices have increased at least 10 cents a gallon since Harvey uh, came ashore and caused record flooding, shutting down oil refineries along the Texas and Louisiana coasts. More than one-fifth of U.S. refining capacity has been shuttered, according to S&P Global Platts. Uh, pump prices have surged. The average um, for a gallon of regular gasoline has risen from about $2.35 in some areas uh, about a week ago to $2.45 now, AAA reports. The price spike is more dramatic in some states, such as Georgia, where the average cost per gallon of regular gas has climbed from two twenty two to two thirty nine. It could take two weeks or longer before these uh, big refineries in the Houston area can recover from record-setting deluge and resume normal operations. President uh, Trump, he's uh, proposed selling nearly half the petroleum reserve uh, amid an oil production boom that has seen U.S. imports drop sharply in the past decade. So we shouldn't see too um, 
too sharp a change in the cost of oil. Meanwhile, officials with a flooded chemical plant outside of Houston that was rocked by a pair of uh, Thursday explosions says they are anticipating more fires from eight other containers housing organic peroxide. Now, they say they weren't explosions. They were just chemical reactions, you know, that kind of exploded. The Harris County Sheriff's Office said 15 deputies were complaining of breathing trouble after the fires broke out and have been released from the hospital. This is not a chemical release. What we have is a fire, Richard uh, Renard, an executive at the Arkema Inc., uh, speaking to reporters near the plant located about 25 miles northeast of Houston. Any smoke is going to be an irritant to your eyes, your lungs, or potentially your skin, he went on to say, saying the company is encouraging anyone who has been exposed to the smoke to seek medical attention. Uh, fire authorities said the plant suffered two small blasts and some uh, deputies suffered irritation and their eyes uh, from the smoke, but they emphasized the materials they uh, that caught fire shortly after midnight were not toxic. So they're keeping an eye on that, not to mention other uh, health problems that they are anticipating with that kind of standing water um, in a very, very large area. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Jeff Myers. He's the author of a study, or at least the presenter of it, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, Overcoming the Outbreak of Five Fatal Worldviews. We'll uh, explain the survey and what they found when he joins us in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My de- next guest points out that Christians are accepting non-biblical worldview statements in astonishing numbers. And that's according to a new nationwide Barna Summit survey to assess the encroaching influence of non-biblical worldviews. Well, the research was conducted to support the release of The Secret Battle of, the, of Ideas About God, Overcoming the Outbreak of Five Fatal Worldviews by Dr. Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries, an international apologetic worldview ministry that explores bad ideas and worldviews that affect the lives of Christians. Dr. Myers explains how Christianity is affected through the bad ideas spread by five worldviews, and we'll talk about them in just a few moments. And these, uh, this battle uh, we're in is one over the notion of ideas. Well, Dr. Myers, in the book, um, answers uh, questions and teaches Christians how to understand what they believe, uh, why they believe it, and how to defend it against ideas uh, he refers to as viruses, ideas of the day. Well, Dr. Jeff Myers is an author, teacher, and president of Summit Ministries, which cultivates young leadership uh, to transform culture with a biblical worldview. He is one of America's most respected authorities on Christian worldview, apologetics, and youth leadership development. In his appearances on the Fox News Channel and on various TV programs, Dr. Myers offers humor and insight from a Christian worldview. He holds a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Denver University. Dr. Myers and his family live in Colorado, but today, at least by phone, we have him right here in uh, in our area. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, you bet. It's nice to be with you, Georgine. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who um, are, are Christians, are professing Christians, but whose worldview does not reflect a biblical worldview. Why is it important that we understand what the Bible teaches um, before we accept something as reflecting what scriptures teach? Well, you 
Christianity, the Christian worldview, teaches that there are two kinds of revelation from God. There's general revelation in nature. We can see that there's design. And second is the special revelation through Scripture, that it's Scripture that really gives us insight into the human condition, into what God is really like, and how we might be redeemed. Every worldview says there are problems, but the Bible gives specific solutions. And here's why it's so important, because the Bible says that it's worldview— uh, the, the, the true understanding of God, true understanding of reality based on biblical principles, true understanding of what is right or wrong, opens up reality to us in a way that other worldviews do not. So if we accept other worldviews, it's not that we're accepting something more than the truth, it's that we're accepting something less than the truth, mm-hmm. and reality becomes obscure to us. Now, to who, what audience are you addressing this um, this analysis and a better understanding of, of what the Bible teaches and how we can defend it? You know, I, I like the question. I appreciate it. The, the audience I had in mind, I, the, the pers- you know, when you write a book, you have a person in mind who's your key audience. And I was imagining a, a person, a woman in her late 20s, early uh, 30s, maybe even into the, her 40s, who really wants to know what's going on in the world because she knows it affects her and it affects her children. But she's very busy, and so she collapses in bed at night. She wants to read a few pages. And my goal was, how do I keep her turning the pages in the book uh, so that she will be able to grasp these worldviews that are on the attack and really against her, her children, her family, husband, and then also the ideas uh, of Jesus and how they respond to the bad ideas the world promotes. Now, I use language in the introduction that's very common. Um, the idea that we know what we believe and why we believe it. Is it better to say, know what the Bible teaches and why we should believe it? Is that really the idea of establishing a, a biblical worldview and uh, a biblical apologetic? Well, I think uh, may, there may be a lot of different ways you could say it that would be helpful to people, but we are to do a couple of things. We're to be prepared to give an answer for the hope we have. Uh, the Apostle Peter says that, and the Apostle Paul says that we are to have the mind of Christ, so that we're to be able to think God's thoughts after him, and those thoughts uh, Christianity says, are rooted in, in Scripture, rather than in our own personal feelings or our own assessment or any kind of uh, individual experience we, we might have had. Well, let's talk about how Christianity is being impacted uh, through the ideas, and we'll talk about them more specifically in a moment, but bad ideas that are, are spread by uh, particularly five uh-huh. worldviews. Um, how is Christianity being impacted? How are believers uh, being impacted? Well, believers are picking up these bad ideas, and you mentioned in the introduction the research project that Summit did with Barna. And by the way, you can take the survey that we gave, is now publicly available as a worldview checkup. So anybody who's listening can take that when they get back to a computer or a cell phone, and you just go to secretbattlebook.com. It's free, and then you can kind of see what your own worldview influences are. Don't be offended if they're not all Christian. That's okay, because our goal is not to be perfect. The goal is to learn how to have the mind of Christ. So the Christians are influenced, and they're influenced in ways that that uh, pick up ideas from the world, more like viruses. It's not that it's not that people who are Marxists become Marxists because they study the collected works of Marx and Lenin. It's they pick up little ideas, a bumper sticker here, a water cooler conversation there, and pretty soon they pick up that worldview that is a very different approach to what reality really is like and what's important than the Christian worldview does. So yeah, it's it's really significant uh, today in our in our research. Christians are deeply deeply influenced by false worldviews, maybe 
even as much as they're influenced by a Christian worldview, even those who regularly go to church. Well, let's talk about the five worldviews uh, that are spreading bad ideas and having a, an impact on a Christian worldview. Georgine, the, the five, and I'll give them in the order that they influence Christians, because I'm, I'm guessing that's probably the primary audience who listening right now. But the first worldview influencing Christians is new spirituality, and it says that the, the physical world is an illusion. Everything that exists is one thing, and that oneness is spiritual. So, uh, you know, the idea of the Force, the idea of higher consciousness, things like that all fit into that new spiritualist worldview. The second one influencing Christians is postmodernism. Postmodernism looks at the 20th century and says, look at all of the death and all of the destruction. All of that happened because people believed certain things were true, and they were willing to kill other people to get their way. If we just quit believing that any is true, then everything will be fine. That's the postmodern idea. Give up the idea of any kind, finding any kind of a capital T truth and just look for your own individual small t truths. Uh, believe it or not, the third largest worldview influencing church-going Christians today is Islam. Uh, the Islamic worldview says that there is a God, but it goes on to say that God does not reveal himself personally to us. God just reveals his law, and you must obey that law. Uh, a Muslim is a person who, who is in submission to God, and Islam teaches that every person who's ever been born was born a Muslim. If they're not a Muslim now, it's because they are in rebellion against Allah, and they need to uh, undergo jihad. For most of our Muslim friends and neighbors, that means that you personally discipline yourself to obey Allah. But as we know, there are many people setting up armies today in order to force everyone in the world to obey Allah in the way that they think he should be obeyed. And that is turning out to be more and more of a, a worldview influence today. And I think you have four that you've given us. Is there another? I, I think yeah, we talked about, let's see, we talked about new spirituality. Sorry, I'm in my truck right now. Sort of, the <laughs> phone started talking to me, and I was a little worried that something had happened to the connection uh, technology. Uh, so we have the new spiritualist worldview, the postmodern worldview. Then the third one was the Islamic worldview. Fourth is the Marxist worldview. The Marxist, it's still dominant today. One out of five people in the world live in a country that is run by Marxists. The Marxist worldview says that it, everything that exists is material and that there's only so much to go around. And so if anybody has more, it's because they've taken more than their fair share. They must be stripped of that fair share through whatever means, taxation, the use of force, or what have you. And then as a result, everybody, will, all of the wealth will be redistributed, will be equal, and our problems will be solved. And then the final worldview, and this seems to be the dominant one on university campuses, I'm mostly involved with Summit Industries and in helping students prepare for that kind of a setting. But the secular worldview is, is the fifth one that's held in, in, by, by Christians, church-going Christians today, and it says God is irrelevant to anything that's really important. Only the material world exists. There's no God, there's no Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit, no heaven, no hell. Uh, so if you were to say, I have a relationship with God, you might as well say, I have a relationship with the tooth fairy, because both are mythological. It doesn't make any sense to make either statement. You should just, you know, keep to yourself. Those are the five dominant worldviews, what I think of as fatal worldviews, because they really are, they're fatal to our, uh, our emotional condition, they make us miserable when we have tried to apply them to our lives, and they, uh, in many cases, lead to physical death. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Jeff Myers. His book is titled The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, Overcoming the Outbreak of Five Fatal Worldviews. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, Overcoming the Outbreak of Five Fatal Worldviews. Dr. Jeff Myers is my guest, and he is uh, uh, has a, a significant amount of influence um, as the, the uh, founder of an organization, uh, Summit Ministries, uh, president, I should say, of Summit Ministries, that helps uh, individuals shape their worldview in light of what Scripture teaches. Uh, now, in the book, um, the Summit Committee, Mission Barna to conduct research on these five worldviews that you mentioned before the break. Tell us more about the research. How did you determine um, what uh, individuals, in in terms of percentages, believe, and how these worldviews are influencing their Christian faith? Yeah, I appreciate the the question. And at summit.org, we have more information about that survey and some of the results we obtained. But we, the question was really this. If only 17% of Christians have a Christian worldview, and that was the claim that the Barna Research Group had made, then what do the other 83% have? And so we took questions from the books I had written, Understanding the Times, Understanding the Faith, and Understanding the Culture, which make up a worldview library for people who are trying to figure out how to apply a biblical worldview and say, a college setting, and then we just we just began to identify statements that are significantly related to one or other of the worldviews, and we just put those questions in and there and asked how many people agree with them. So, for instance, we put quite, uh, one of the questions in there is, uh, please state how much you agree with, or disagree with the following statement. The problem, the root of society's problem is that people do not obey God, and they should be forced to do so if necessary. And I, uh, I, I believe that's statement, and our our research shows that statement reflects an Islamic worldview, not a Christian worldview, because the Christian worldview is about free will and people being able to choose Jesus rather than being forced to obey God by accepting Jesus. The Islamic worldview, however, is based on, it is based on that idea that you can force people to obey God if necessary. Here's the problem, Georgine. Nearly 50% of millennial Christians either agree strongly or agree somewhat with that idea. So I think they've grown so accustomed to the idea in their colleges that you can force people to believe certain things, which is what happens on university campuses and politically correct settings when people are shamed or re-educated in order to believe certain things. Um, They have come to believe that Christianity also should force people to obey God. So that's just one example of how that, that kind of research works, and I would really invite people to come take the free worldview checkup at that secretbattlebook.com. You do that for yourself, and you can also sign up to do that for your whole group if you're interested in knowing what people in your school or in your church or your group of friends believe, um, then you can you can take that, and then we'll show you how we can help you uh, get the mind of Christ. Do you find that many people who have drifted in terms of their uh, their worldview um, would be surprised to learn that they're being as strongly influenced by views that conflict with their profession of faith as they are? Some people, well, we've had about 30,000-some people take this worldview checkup so far, and some of the responses have been from people who say, I didn't emerge with a Christian worldview from this, and so I'm grumpy because I, I do have a Christian worldview. Um, others say, wow, I guess I'm more influenced by Marxist ideology than I thought, or new spiritualist ideology or whatever. How can I learn more? So, uh, you know, I guess it really just depends on your attitude. If you're interested in always being right, then uh, you probably will be pretty 
grumpy with your results. If you're interested in really finding out where, what your thinking is like and what it means, and then gaining the mind of Christ, then uh, you'll probably be you'll probably be instructed by it, and it'll be a good spiritual growth experience. In the book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, you compare uh, these fatal worldviews to a virus. Now, explain um, that comparison and how it helps us better understand how we are influenced in ways that we might not expect. Well, I I think of bad ideas as being more virus-like than anything else. Like I, you know, I was thinking that people don't become a Christian after reading a systematic theology series and reading the Bible all the way through and learning Greek and Hebrew. They, I mean, they, they we pick up our worldviews in a different way than that. But in the same way, the, people pick up bad ideas just little bits and pieces: a bumper sticker here, a political speech there, a water cooler conversation, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, they they have these ideas in their mind and in their heart. Uh, a virus is an important analogy to remember, because when we are, whenever we get a cold or flu, we can remember that ideas influence us in the same way. And a, a virus is different than other kinds of infections. If you get a bacterial infection, then you can have that infection. You can you know, use antibacterial medication and erase that, uh, and you can kill the bacteria. But a virus isn't alive, so it can't really be killed. You, you have to do something else to stop viruses from spreading. Now, you mentioned earlier the goal isn't uh, an unrealistic goal of uh, achieving a perfect worldview uh, that reflects your Christian faith. But what is the goal for the average person who really does want to honor God, wants to understand what the scriptures teach, and to hold to those views? What might we expect if we expose things that are influencing us and then make the conscious decision that I want to to, uh, change my thinking so it reflects uh, my core convictions? Well, I think there are four things that we need to do. The The first one is we need to identify the bad ideas. When when people are trying to fight back against viral pandemics that could that have the threat of killing millions of people, they first of all try to very clearly identify what they're up against. They know the virus is the enemy, but they also know if you don't clearly identify what the enemy's characteristics are, you can't effectively fight against it. And second thing, you have to isolate what is bad about the bad ideas. When people fight against viral pandemics, pandemics in the physical world, they have to isolate. Where is this virus? Where is it taking hold? Who is being affected by it? You know, the Spanish flu is an interesting but scary example. In 1918, 1919, 50 million people around the world died from the Spanish flu. And it wasn't people whose immune systems were weak. It was people whose immune systems were strong because when the body got the Spanish flu, it reacted so strongly that it created collateral damage that ultimately led to the deaths of people. It wasn't the flu itself that killed people. It was the body's response to the flu that killed people. So don't, you know, the same thing is true in the spiritual world. Don't imagine that just because you're strong, you're somehow immune. Sometimes stronger people can actually be more susceptible to bad ideas. And then the third thing, Georgine, is you have to be able to inform people. You have to be able to say, here's what Jesus teaches. Here's what these other worldviews teach. Here's how they obscure some aspect or ignore some aspect of reality that could set us free and help us find answers to big life questions like, am I loved and what is my purpose? And then the fourth thing, and I, I put all each of these with an I word, so I identify, isolate, inform, and the fourth thing is invest. When somebody gets a flu virus, you don't make fun of them or condemn them. They didn't try to get sick. They don't want to be sick. Instead, you have compassion on them, and you try to give them the tools they need for their body to be able to fight back against 
uh, the virus's effects so that it can recover. And I think all four of those things apply in the spiritual mm-hmm. world as well as in the physical. Our time is short, but I want to ask you what role you think social media plays in helping to misinform us uh, as we aspire to a biblical worldview. Well, social media has good sides and bad sides to it. The good side is that you can get news from multiple sources rather than just from one or two controlled sources. But the downside is people tend to believe the things they see on social media that are posted by their friends more than they trust other kinds of sources. So social media can be a place where bad ideas spread very, very quickly. Uh, You know, you take a few minutes to look at your Facebook account or other social media accounts, and a lot of what you're seeing is, is bad information bad ideas, Facebook memes, and so forth, that are spreading around and taking people captive. Well, the uh, uh, the book is, is really well done to help us recognize uh, areas of influence that we may not um, be aware of. What advice would you give to Christians who are really struggling to overcome bad ideas uh, constantly uh, brought on by these five influences that you've outlined in the book? Well, you've got to do the four things we talked about. You have to be able to identify mm-hmm. the bad ideas, which means you have to know something about it. You have to be able to isolate them, inform people, and then invest in those who are sick. And that's why I wrote The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. I wrote it in a very difficult time of my own life, where uh, through some, some life crises, I had sunk into a depression. And I wanted to know, does Jesus really have answers to these big questions? Am I loved? Why do I hurt? What is my purpose? I wanted to know the answers to all of those questions, and I found them in Jesus, and I found that these other worldviews, distressingly, the ones that are most influential in the world, may actually prevent us from finding good answers to those questions. Again, the book is titled The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, Overcoming the Outbreak of Five Fatal Worldviews. And again, where can they go if they want to take the test itself? Just go to the website secretbattlebook.com, and then you can take the Worldview check up there. And you can also get, uh, get, find a way to sign your group up to take it, too. Uh, might be a good teaching if you want to really help others focus on the mind of Christ. And there is a video course. You can get free samples there, too. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Sure appreciate you. Take care. You too. Again, uh, Dr. Jeff Myers, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Hey, on Saturday, September the 16th, there's an opportunity to have a night of comedy that you don't have to worry about it drifting into, uh, well, profanity. Uh, Michael Jr., is coming. The Fish Family Safe Comedy Night is starring Michael Jr. He's very funny. It's presented by Fish Fest Concerts. That's September 16th, 7 o'clock p.m. at East Hill Church in Gresham. Tickets are about $25. There are also gold circle options. You can find that out on the website. But we want to give you an opportunity to win a pair of tickets. We're going to give those tickets away to caller number two uh, to hear uh, Ma- uh, Michael Jr. on Saturday, September 16th, East Hill Church, one 800 845 1-800-845-2162. So no matter where uh, you experience this guy, his humor on stage, online, one-on-one, I've watched a lot of his comedy online, uh, you get the same Michael Jr. He is conversational. He's got a great sense of humor, a sense of mischief, a grasp of uh, the, the cultural current and addresses things in a way that um, I think we can all laugh and um, 
maybe consider a bit uh, more deeply. Uh, he's going to be in uh, concert. And again, that's a comedy night. Uh, again, on Saturday, September 16th, you can go to kpdq.com or our sister station, The Fish website, for more information and to uh, get your tickets. But we're giving away to caller number two a pair of tickets to Michael Jr. Now, we were going to do that tomorrow, but I've given both pair away today so that we've uh, covered the days that um, we've committed to. So hope to see you there. I'm looking forward to a great evening of comedy. Well, taking a look at some of the news, lawyers for a Colorado uh, baker who declined to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple on religious grounds fired the first shot today. Uh, in the latest high-profile religious liberty case to come before the Supreme Court, Jack Phillips' legal team argued that his constitutionally protected beliefs were violated when he and his employees were ordered by Colorado Civil Rights Commission to make cakes for same-sex couples and undergo sensitivity training in 2014. Uh, those beliefs inspire him to love and serve people from all walks of life, but he can only create cakes that are consistent with the tenets of his faith, their brief says. His decisions uh, on whether to to design a specific custom cake have never focused on who the customer is, but on what the customer's cake will express or celebrate. Well, Colorado's Court of Appeals upheld the commission's ruling against Phillips, and the state Supreme Court declined to hear the case. However, the U.S. Supreme Court announced this June that it would consider the matter. Well, the saga began in 2012, like so many others began, two years before Colorado legalized same-sex marriage. Charlie Craig and David Mullins were planning to fly to Massachusetts, where their same-sex marriage was legal and host a reception in Denver upon their return to Colorado. The Craig and uh, his uh, partner ordered a cake from Phillips Shop, Masterpiece Cake Shop in suburban Lakewood. But Phillips declined to do so, leading the couple to file a complaint with the Civil Rights Commission. The man later received a rainbow-themed cake for free from another cake artist. Phillips regularly declines opportunities to create custom cakes for events that violate his convictions on a number of grounds, according to the statement from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is defending the baker in that case, including Halloween cakes, uh, anti-American cakes, adult-themed cakes, cake containing alcohol and cakes that would disparage others. Well, the baker's attorneys claim that Masterpiece Cake, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop rather, has lost approximately 40% of its previous business since the ruling. Oral arguments in the case are expected sometime in the fall. The case, by the way, is Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And this case has the potential to impact other pending cases as well. And there's even an effort to try to uh, link uh, other cases to this one since the Supreme Court has uh, made the decision it will uh, take it on. Well, lawyers for uh, Donald Trump have met several times with special counsel Robert Mueller in recent months. They've submitted memos arguing that the president didn't obstruct justice and submitted memos arguing, uh, uh, rather, memos arguing that the president didn't obstruct justice by firing former FBI chief uh, James Comey and calling into question Mr. Comey's reliability as a potential witness. People familiar with the matter are saying one memo submitted by uh, rather submitted to Mr. Mueller by the president's legal team in June laid out the case that Mr. Trump has the inherent authority under the Constitution to hire and fire as he sees fit and therefore didn't obstruct justice when he fired Mr. Comey as director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in May. Another memo submitted the same month outlined why Mr. Comey would make an unsuitable witness calling him prone to exaggerate 
exaggeration, unreliable and congressional testimony, and the source of leaks to the news media. The legal arguments and meetings offer a first detailed look at the interplay between the high-profile, wide-ranging investigation and the team that is representing the president since the special counsel was appointed by the Justice Department in May. The White House referred questions to Ty Cobb, the president's special counsel. Mr. Cobb said, we have great respect for the special counsel. Uh, Out of respect for his process, we will not be discussing incremental uh, responses. Uh, the White House referred questions to his attorney. The federal probe began by looking into alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election and whether the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian operative uh, to help him win. It was initially led by Mr. Comey as director of the FBI. Well, after uh, he was fired by the president, Mr. Mueller was appointed by the Justice Department with a broad uh, remit to investigate not just possible coordination by but any matters that arose from the investigation. That now includes whether Mr. Trump obstructed justice by attempting to alter the course of the investigation. The Wall Street Journal has previously reported. Well, Mr. Trump has given conflicting reasons why he dismissed Comey. At first, he said it was in response to advice from Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who concluded in a memo that the president um, uh, for the president, rather, that Mr. Comey was an ineffective leader. Two days after the firing, Mr. Trump told NBC News the decision to fire Mr. Comey was his alone and that uh, when he did it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia uh, is made up uh, is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won, end quote. Well, in giving the memos to Mr. Mueller, the president's lawyer hoped to get a swift conclusion to the obstruction of justice piece of that investigation and potentially an exoneration of the president. Uh, the obstruction-related memo advanced uh, other arguments beyond the matter of the president's executive power, citing case law that the lawyers believed buttressed the contention that Mr. Trump had not obstructed justice. Mr. Mueller didn't offer a response to that memo or to the arguments pertaining to Mr. Comey's reliability as a witness. People familiar with the matter are saying this is no indication he accepted the lawyer's reasoning or has dropped that part of the inquiry or the uh, the opposite Um, that he's looking uh, at any obstructing of justice by the president at all. All Mr. Mueller communicated was a willingness to receive legal submissions from the lawyers. Uh, John Dowd, who's now uh, head of the president's outside legal team, said, I just don't think it's appropriate to discuss my communications with special counsel Mueller. Uh, Why should I rupture a relationship with a special counsel? Well, the relationship between uh, Mueller and Comey has been called into question and whether or not Mueller is capable of objectivity and the team of people he's called alongside him to engage in the investigation if they can be objective, given uh, the fact that most of them were donors to the uh, Clinton campaign. All of that under uh, investigation being held very close to the chest. We'll just have to wait and see what ultimately uh, happens. Uh, Meanwhile, let me scroll down here because I thought I had printed uh, this uh, piece and apparently I did not. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, we learned today, if again, if I can get this to priest, that um, then FBI Director Comey apparently began drafting the exoneration statement um, for Hillary Clinton before interviewing uh, the former Secretary of State. Uh, a rather interesting piece, and I can't get the details. I thought I'd printed it and had it with me. But anyway, uh, just another twist in this ongoing, rather sordid um, back and forth on this administration, uh, what was done, what was said, who's responsible, and uh, and all of that. We'll continue to follow that story. And if I can print this, I'll share more uh, details. Well, apparently I, I've got something here. 
um, they're reporting that the uh, then FBI director Comey, he started drafting that statement exonerating uh, Hillary Clinton in the investigation into her private email before interviewing key witnesses. And I think there were something like 20 witnesses that were to be interviewed, uh, but he'd already begun with the exoneration um, uh, script. Uh, that included, by the way, Clinton herself, two Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee said today, conclusion first, fact gathering second, that is no way to run an investigation, the committee chairman said. The FBI should be held to a higher standard than that, especially in a matter of such great public interest and controversy. Again, the twists and turns continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up on our next segment, we're going to talk with Romina Bacha. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, Congress left for August recess with lots of issues yet to be discussed or decided upon, uh, raising the debt ceiling, tax reform, long-term spending deals, and a possible revival of the Obamacare repeal, to just uh, name a few priorities uh, for lawmakers when they return. We'll talk with her about what we might anticipate, what they need to do, and what's likely to happen, which probably isn't much. That's uh, coming up in our next segment. Well, Americans on average spend more on taxes in 2016 than they did on food and clothing combined. That's according to data released this week by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The same data also shows that in three years, from 2013 to 2016, the average tax bill for Americans increased 41.13%. What on earth happened with that? All right. In 2016, according to uh, BLS, uh, consumer uh, units, as they um, uh, call it, which includes families, financially independent individuals, people living in a single household who share expenses, spent more on average on federal, state and local taxes, about $10,489, than they did on food, about $7,203, clothing, $1,803 combined, which is about 9000 Six dollars. Well, the average tax bill for American consumer units increased from seven thousand four hundred and twenty-three in twenty thirteen to ten thousand four hundred eighty-nine in twenty sixteen. That's according to data released this week by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Well, the tax and spending data was collected as part of the BLS Consumer Expenditure Survey, which is conducted by the BLS by the Bureau, uh, the Census Bureau, rather. The survey measures the expenditures and incomes of American consumers. In other words, you spent um, less on food and clothing than you did on your tax bill. The survey publishes the itemized expenditures of what it refers to as consumer units, which includes all members of a particular household who are related by blood, marriage, adoption, or other legal arrangements, or a person living alone or sharing a household with others, or living as a uh, roomer in a private home or lodging house or in permanent living quarters more than you probably uh, need to know. Anyway, it's an interesting statistic, and that has increased, at least your tax burden has increased rather dramatically uh, since 2013. Well, President Trump began his uh, sales pitch yesterday for tax reform, and it's not too much to uh, say the Republican majority in Congress hangs on success. Uh, One big question is whether the party will let itself be held hostage by processing that favor 
uh, high taxes and more spending as it did on health care. So what will they do if anything one wonders. Well, outfits like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities have been ringing alarms that Republicans are trying to hide the cost of their tax plan in a seemingly arcane maneuver. At issue, and that's a quote, by the way, at issue is the budget baseline. It's a benchmark for predicting how much tax revenue will flow into the Treasury. Uh, Gaming the baseline has been a bipartisan pastime since Democrats invented it in 1974, but the Republicans have enjoyed using it as well. But the question is uh, whether the GOP should surrender $500 billion that could be deployed to reduce tax rates. Well, the debate is over what assumptions House and Senate budget committees should make about the future, which requires rehearsing some history. For years, a Christmas tradition in Congress has been to jam through a tax extender package that extends some... Temporary breaks for everything from electric motorcycles to rum from the uh, Virgin Islands. In 2015, Congress made permanent some preferences, including a research and development credit in a chess move by House Speaker Paul Ryan. Permanence meant that the uh, credits would be counted in the budget baseline. Congress can now nix the credits to finance cuts in personal and corporate tax rates. Well, uh, Steve Moore, who is the uh, uh, a distinguished fellow on economics, Uh, on the president's uh, push for lower rates and simplified code, points out that Congress didn't enshrine all of the preferences which are set to expire at uh, various points in the coming years. One of the biggest is uh, bonus depreciation for businesses. The question is whether the House and the Senate baseline should assume these tax preferences will be extended by Congress as they have been in the past or not. Well, the distinction is academic. It's whether the baseline should be scored under current law or current policy. Yeah, this is the weeds, they, as they call it. The self-styled purists say the budget must be tallied under current law, which would assume that, say, energy credits expire and the extra tax, uh, tax revenue accrues to the government. The current policy approach makes the uh, concession to reality that Congress will not dump a popular or powerful tax preference, such as a business depreciation, among other holdouts or handouts, at least not without larger reform to the tax code. Well, the difference is in the ballpark of $500 billion over 10 years. So it matters how they decide to establish that benchmark, which is enough to finance a roughly five percentage point reduction in tax rates for corporations. One reason this is important is that a tax plan has to uh, be revenue neutral to qualify under the Senate's uh, reconciliation process, which, albeit arcane, allows the upper chamber to pass reform with a 51 vote majority. Well, tax writers in Congress have to find ways to offset the cost of rate cuts and succumb to a current law approach uh, that would deprive the GOP of some $500 billion that will be spent by government anyway. Well, all of this is a case study of uh, budget dysfunction. And uh, Romina Baccio, who we're going to talk with in just a few moments, and Adam Michelle uh, offer uh, some examples. The Congressional Budget Office baseline for spending assumes current policy. CBO predicts that the money for highways or other funding from Congress will continue even after an appropriation expires. Yet not so on tax revenues, which the CBO's baseline scores under current law. So you've got two different ways of scoring. The budget gnomes assume that tax cuts are going to end on the scheduled expiration date though many of, uh, if not most, are granted a stay of execution. And as Ms. Baccia and Ms., uh, Mr. Michelle point out, the practical effect of the disparate assumption is to make spending easier and tax cuts harder. And we're going to talk about these uh, uh, assumptions that make tax reform, tax cuts harder, um, setting a, a debt ceiling and, and so on uh, more difficult when she joins me in just a few moments. So look forward uh, to that.
Meanwhile, the Trump administration uh, today retaliated against Russia for expelling hundreds of U.S. diplomats, announcing Moscow will be required to close several posts in major American cities. Well, the State Department, in a statement that warned of a downward spiral in relations, said Russia has to close its consulate general in San Francisco, as well as its chancellery annex in Washington, D.C., and consular annex in New York City. These closures will need to be accomplished by the 2nd of September. Keep in mind, today is the 30th of August. That's what Heather Newant, uh, Newart rather, said in a statement. Well, the decision was in retaliation for Russian President Vladimir Putin kicking out more than 700 U.S. diplomats after President Trump reluctantly signed a sanctions law passed by Congress. And while calling the Russian order unwarranted, Newart said that the U.S. has fully implemented the reduction of the U.S. mission in Russia. She described the new demand on Moscow to reduce the presence in the United States as being in the spirit of, uh, of parity invoked by the Russians. Now, with this action, both countries will remain with three consulates each, she said. And while there will continue to be a disparity in the number of diplomatic and consular annexes, we have chosen to allow the Russian government to maintain some of its annexes in uh, an effort to arrest the downward spiral in our relationship, end quote. She said the U.S. hopes we can avoid further retaliatory action by both sides and move forward to achieve the stated goal of both of our presidents, improved relations between our two countries and increased cooperation on areas of mutual concern. She went on to say the United States is prepared to take further action as necessary and as warranted. Well, earlier this month, the president signed a bill imposing sanctions on Russia after the legislation overwhelmingly passed both the House and the Senate. The sanctions stemmed from Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014 and its attempted interference in the United States presidential election in 2016. After Congress passed the sanctions in July, Vladimir Putin said 755 U.S. diplomats and staff, they're not all diplomats, per se, uh, would be expelled from Russia by the 1st of September. Their uh, diplomats and others will be required to leave here on the 2nd. We're ready for another heat wave. Well, the high temperatures in Portland are going to uh, be between 95 and 100 degrees through the weekend and into the middle of next week. Hot days are coming. The National Weather Service issued an excessive heat watch. Um, uh, for a large area of northwest Oregon and southwest Washington from Friday afternoon through Monday evening. Forecasters expect Saturday to be the hottest day of that stretch. Wildfire smoke from the Chetco Bar Fire in southern Oregon, uh, that's going to return to the valleys on Saturday, which will worsen the air quality. We've uh, gotten a little bit used to that, but the forecasts look like this for the next few days. Uh, it's about 83 degrees today. They're expecting a high of 94 on Friday, 98 on Saturday. And depending on who you talk to, on Sunday, 95. On Monday, 95. Tuesday, 97. Wednesday, 92. So when kids get back to school, on uh, many of them, on Tuesday, 97 degrees are expected. Now, many are forecasting that on Saturday we could uh, top 100 degrees. The smoke that's also been predicted may prevent that from happening. But Saturday and Sunday are expected to be very hot, although Tuesday at 97 is right up there. So again, on Friday, 94, Saturday, 98, Sunday, 95, Monday, 95, and then back up to 97 on Tuesday and 92 on Wednesday. Fall might be coming uh, technically, but we're not going to uh, experience that in terms of uh, temperatures. Again, we're going to talk with Romina Baccia. She's a fiscal and economic expert. We'll talk with her about um, 
Congress that's returning uh, following their uh, August recess, and there's lots on their plate, raising the debt ceiling or not, whether or not that's going to be offset, offset rather, with spending uh, cuts, tax reform, long-term spending deals, a possible uh, revival of the Obamacare effort to repeal and replace or something thereabouts. So we'll talk with her about that. And then uh, in our final segment, we're going to talk about Joel Olstein. I appreciated what uh, Ed Stetzer wrote in Christianity Today about how some Christians hate Joel Olstein more than they love truth. And we're very quick to uh, suggest what uh, was going on there before all the facts were available and why uh, most people would care is uh, is is a bit of a mystery to me. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll share what he had to say that might help us temper our quick reactions to things we know little about. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, writing a commentary for the Heritage Foundation, writes that the debt ceiling is back and so is the largest, most predictable crisis in U.S. history. The debt ceiling is both a signaling device and an action-oriented fiscal tool to bring Washington's unsustainable spending and borrowing under control. Well, as we know, Congress is going to be returning from their August recess. And what might we expect with regard to the debt ceiling, tax reform, long-term spending deals, and the possible revival of the Obamacare repeal? Here to talk with us about that is Romina Bacha. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a little frustrating to know that after having taken a break, uh, that members of Congress are going to first have to deal with the debt ceiling and issues that we would have thought they, uh, because of their uh, level of importance, would have been dealt with uh, from day one of the uh, of the new Congress. Um, let's talk first of all about the debt ceiling and where it stands and what they are required to do by a particular deadline. The debt ceiling was uh, suspended, if you will. It was waived uh, such that it was not active uh, in November of 2015 in a deal signed between then-Speaker of the House John Boehner and President Obama. And the debt limit was just reinstated in accordance with that schedule on March 16, 2017. So what that tells you is the Treasury and Congress have known for many, many months now Mm -hmm. that the debt limit was back and what have they done? They continued borrowing from so-called uh, loopholes, debt limit loopholes, where they borrow from other government accounts, including from federal employee retirement, in order to keep spending more than they take in. Now, that period is about to come to an end as Treasury is looking at running out of cash sometime by mid-October. Um, but it looks very likely that Congress will try to tie the debt limit in with the uh, spending bills that need to pass this September or there would be a government shutdown. So um, the, the shutdown has actually nothing to do with the debt limit, but Congress likes to confuse the American mm-hmm. people by, by throwing it all into one pot. Yeah. We heard Nancy Pelosi and Stephen Munchen some weeks back advocate for a clean debt ceiling um, hike. Explain what that is and why, although it sounds uh, you know sanitary, it's not necessarily in the best <laughs> interest of the American people. No, this is really such a misleading word. What they really mean is we want to continue the status quo. We want an unconditional debt limit increase, meaning no spending cuts, no spending controls, just give us more money. And unfortunately, the Trump administration seems to be following a similar strategy. Mnuchin has repeatedly now called for a clean debt limit increase. Uh, Many fiscal conservatives in Congress are rightfully objecting to this strategy, 
So what the greatest risk is now that the Trump administration might rely on Democrats and some moderate Republicans, like they did back in May when they passed the bad spending deal, to get through another spending deal that will bust through the current budget caps and increase the debt limit without putting any controls in place. It's very unfortunate, but spending, overspending, and debt, really, they are bipartisan problems. Both parties mm-hmm. are equally guilty. Yeah. Now, we heard under the previous administration that having a debt ceiling at all is a bad idea. It sort of ties the, the nation's hands in, in doing the people's business. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the value of the debt ceiling, because it, it is one of the only checks on uh, out-of-control spending that Congress has demonstrated uh, is a problem for them, administration after administration. Yes, and the big problem is that two-thirds of the U.S. budget is actually growing on autopilot. Those are the so-called entitlement programs, or sometimes they're called mandatory spending, which, by the way, doesn't mean this money needs to be spent. It just means that that money is allowed to grow um, out of control. And that means that even if Congress doesn't do anything, the budget continues to grow. The debt limit is pretty much the only check on that spending. Um, we need to put those programs on a budget that includes health care programs, old age entitlement programs, and welfare programs, all of which are now growing uncontrolled. And the debt limit is the one um, point where Congress is forced to look at what all this out-of-control spending leads to, which is a rising national debt, which now exceeds the overall size of our economy at over $20 trillion. So nobody's saying we shouldn't pay the bills that we've already incurred. What we're saying is that we, going forward, we need to make adjustments to the budget, put those programs on a budget so we can have a sustainable fiscal future. Right now, we're saddling younger generations yes. with unfathomable uh, burdens of debt, which will harm their economic opportunities. You write in the commentary I referenced a few moments ago that excessive debt imposes high costs on the nation. It slows economic growth, reducing overall opportunity and wages for Americans. It contributes to policy uncertainty and a reduction in and delay of investments in the nation. And it increases the risk of a financial and national security crisis to which Congress and the president would have a lesser ability to react than if the debt were contained. There are long-term implications to failing to take uh, this out of control spending um, in hand. And unfortunately, we're not seeing uh, sufficient numbers of members of Congress. And as you pointed out, the administration that are taking seriously enough the implications to the nation pr- uh, present and future of uh, spending as we have uh, have been doing. That's right. But there is one opportunity, which is if the president is serious about tax reform and if he's going to pursue it, uh, in the Congress through this process called reconciliation, which means that it can be filibuster-proof in the Senate, pretty much the only way to get bills through in today's day and age, then they will have to make sure that this tax reform is deficit neutral. Mm-hmm. That means adopting spending reforms along with tax reforms, and that's the way to go, because the problem we have is current tax revenue is already falling short of how much Washington is spending. I am a firm believer of tax cuts and uh, relieving uh, reducing the burden on the American people of our excessive tax system, but to do so responsibly and to make sure those tax cuts can be lasting and permanent and won't be overturned because of high deficits and debt, we also need, need to relieve the spending pressures. And that means putting entitlements on a budget, capping them, limiting them, adopting a Swiss-style debt break, if you will. By the way, Switzerland is running a surplus this year. We could learn a lot from our allies across the pond. Now, if they do it through the reconciliation process, process, does that um, produce uh, lasting tax reform or does it make it easier to to overturn that under the next administration or the next Congress? 
Using reconciliation, if they've put in place permanent tax reforms, that makes them basically stand uh, the test of time. But to do so, uh, they have to also adopt spending reforms so that it can be deficit neutral. If they don't, what they might be tempted to do is just adopt temporary tax reforms, which is what Bush did. And many of his tax cuts were actually overturned during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. So for permanent tax reform, spending relief is so important. So when they come back, the the first thing that we're likely going to see is uh, them dealing with the debt ceiling. You know, I think what they're going to deal with first is actually an uh, emergency supplemental bill mm-hmm. to deal with the devastation caused in Houston by ah. the hurricane. And they may use that in order to get people to vote for other spending increases. President Trump has asked for an increase in defense. Democrats want more spending on domestic programs. They got that back in May. It's likely that they'll work with the president again to get that done. And it would be very easy for them to just fold the debt limit in under that deal because nobody will be paying attention to to that, everyone will be talking about the uh, relief package for Hurricane Harvey. And that's how Congress likes to get business done, hide the bad parts and only talk about the stuff that people support. So that's a real risk. I'm, I, I'm saying they should separate those issues. They should address the debt limit separately. They want to attach it on the tax reform. They can do that part of reconciliation, um, but they should not do the be opportunistic, which is what they would be if they used this hurricane relief bill to tack on other spending and raise the debt limit. That would be fiscally irresponsible. Absolutely. And we should keep our eyes and ears open and hold them accountable if they appear to be moving in that direction. So that at least gives us something to look for and to respond to as this process begins when they return to Washington. People need to remember that members of Congress, although it doesn't always seem that way, work for them. They work for their constituents, but people need to let them know what they think, that they're paying attention, and what they expect their members of Congress to do. Ultimately, they rely on their constituents to be reelected, and that's what they care most about. So we need an engaged citizenry. It's the only check on an uh, overgrowing government. I would encourage them to go to heritage.org. You can also get good background information on the issues you care about. I mentioned that Romina wrote a commentary on the Heritage page uh, titled, uh, Is America on the Verge of Another Debt Ceiling Crisis? You can find that it's actually dated back in July, but very relevant today. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your input. Thank you for having me. Again, Romina Bacha is a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation, talking about the fact that Congress... Uh, that left for its August recess with many issues yet to be discussed, will be returning, raising the debt ceiling, tax reform, long-term spending deals, and a possible revival of the Obamacare repeal are just a few of the legislative priorities for lawmakers as they return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I appreciated Ed Stetzer writing for Christianity Today. Uh, his headline was simply, Some Christians hate Joel Olstein more than they love the truth, and that's wrong. Be silent until there's something to say. Now, some of you followed on social media the brouhaha over whether or not Lakewood uh, Church should have opened its doors and what nefarious reasons prevented them from doing so. Um, but uh, Stetzer, I think, offers some wisdom in how we approach these kinds of issues, especially the back and forth that many of us saw on social media. He writes, I never thought I'd write a post defending Joel Olstein. 
Truth is, I never thought I'd be talking about defending Joel Olstein, but I digress. He goes on, but seriously, the floodgates of media unleashed against Joel Olstein, based on an unclear church statement and fanned by agenda-driven social media, tells me that we have a cultural problem. Well, yeah. The fact that many Christians have joined in shows me it's a Christian problem. It's wrong in both cases, but disturbing to see some Christians joining in. It seems some Christians hate Joel Olstein more than they love the truth. I'd expect that from the world, but I'd hope for better from the church. So, so we are clear. Olstein and I are not the same page theologically, and I have serious problems with the prosperity gospel. Furthermore, his platitudes and lifestyle have not helped in this moment, but... Do we have to join the deluge of hatred toward him for what is a questionable situation at best? In other words, I get some people, I guess rather, some people are upset about Osteen's theology and approach to his work. But why are so many Christians joining in on spreading a false narrative about his actions in Houston? And here are some facts, again, quoting from Ed Stetzer. Apparently, Oldstein had canceled church on Sunday, and the church indicated, perhaps inarticulately, that the church was impassable. They did not say it was flooded, though um, who needs to worry about facts when we hate someone, right? Well, the church directed their people and presumably others to take shelter with friends, family, and at the George Brown Convention Center. Now, by the way, churches all over Dallas, or all the, uh, over Houston, by the way, all closed. They didn't have services because they were concerned about their people trying to get there and, and back and so on. Anyway, as the water rose in Houston, social media spread the word that Lakewood Church housed in a 16,800-seat arena was turning people away who were seeking shelter. Nope, they said that is not what happened. Um, there are some facts you can find in Christianity today. But fast forward 12 hours and the facts began to surface that the church itself was flooded in few sections. And Lakewood responded that only three people came to the, to a shelter and they had all been helped. So, well, maybe we might see that facts are our friends. And just because you hate or just uh, have theological concerns with him, Olstein does not entitle you uh, to your own set of facts. I'm not saying that uh, they did, uh, didn't bungle their first statement. I'm saying that a lot of Christians spread false statements. Let's let the world spread lies as we stand for truth. Facts. Well, fact-checking sites such as Snopes.com give mixed reviews and no clear answer on the amount of flooding at Lakewood, but that's not the main point. We may never know just how hard it would be would have been rather to organize a relief effort at a facility that has been prone to flooding in the past. Before Lakewood bought the building, it was the Compact Center where the Houston Rockets played. In past decades, the arena actually had been closed in really bad weather during the Rockets' glory days. The truth is that uh, many more... Um, Get this right. The truth is that many were casting and spreading judgment about a situation they could not possibly know uh, in its entirety. The response from many people spreading false information shows their character, not Osteen's. Uh, the irony for some of this uh, in this moment is clear. They hate Osteen because they believe he distorts the truth. And then they do the same when they critique him with false information. You don't have to appreciate Osteen, but you do need to care about the truth if you're going to post about it. So what now? How would Christians handle this kind of media tidal wave? Or how should they? How should we? It seems that the brother of Jesus had something to say about being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get enraged. Uh, Stop, number one. The selective listening. Let's face it, many already hate Osteen, so they're hungry for a scandal. Here's the tough question. Are we hungry for a strategic or moral failure at Lakewood, too? As I mentioned above, I have serious thoughts about Osteen's theology, but I need not plug my ears 
so that I can hear what is true, so that I cannot hear what is true. Number two, speak without rage. Some take to Twitter like a death metal band. The screaming squeezes the logic out of our comments. When we dial back the emotion, we are also more likely to retract when we have been wrong. Number three, tweet your retractions too. If we can learn anything from piling on at this time, it may be that saying sorry is something that Christians should do well. Number four, be silent. I waited to spill some ink on this topic. I had one thought at first and another thought as the facts came out. Uh, What if I had piled on at the beginning or defended their decision too quickly? It has been best to be silent until there is something to say. And perhaps the best is to simply pull the plug. Now, if only we could just pull the plug and drain the water out of Houston. Meanwhile, let's save our energy for praying and supporting relief efforts. By the way, Ed Stetzer, he holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's executive director of the Billy Graham Center and publishes church leadership resources through Mission uh, Group. Good advice. It was interesting to me. I had people run to my office immediately uh, when the news came that uh, that Joel Olstein's church, Lakewood, was closed to people who uh, may have needed help without knowing any information. And of course, it was all over uh, social media, all over the Internet. It is a good idea to be silent until there's something to say, to wait for all of the facts. And if we get it wrong, to be quick to say, mm, got it wrong. Sorry. Maybe learn something from the whole affair in the meantime. Well, we certainly are continuing to pray for uh, folks in Houston. I was moved to see on social media one shelter where lots of people, hundreds perhaps, uh, were being sheltered because they had been displaced from their homes. Everything familiar that provided security for them had been stripped away. We don't know of those who were in that particular shelter, how many of their homes were completely underwater, will never have the opportunity to return, had lost everything. We don't know among those at that particular shelter how serious a, a crisis this was for them, but we do know that they were in this place out of necessity. Well, I was heartened to see that somewhere in the middle of that group, you could hear a lone voice singing. And then you heard other voices start to join in. And if you listened carefully enough, you could hear that they were singing gospel songs, songs of encouragement and hope and faith, attempting to put into perspective the overwhelming set of circumstances that brought all of these people together, people that had very little in common, perhaps people from all walks of life. Some may have lived in fine homes. Others uh, may have lived in homes uh, that were barely livable. We don't know. But these were people who were thrown together by a crisis. And the voice that was raised was a voice of triumph, a voice of encouragement, of hope, of faith, and an assurance that God has got us. Uh, He has not abandoned us, that he has us, and we are going to draw nearer to him in the midst of this crisis, because that is our true foundation. My help comes from the Lord. I look to the hills, I look up, and he will provide for me. And it was a wonderful thing to see the people who were despairing begin to stand up and gather around. And if they weren't singing, they were listening and uh, were inspired by the words that were being shared. That's um, a scenario that I understand is being played out in various places 
around um, Houston. We're hearing about churches of all sizes, not just Lakewood, which is a huge church, but small churches that began collecting uh, food and supplies that were uh, being transported to where people desperately needed them. We heard of Christians who were saying, my home is available. Uh, we can house this many people and, and uh, churches that were making space in their facilities available. What a tremendous opportunity for God's people to stand in the gap and to uh, to minister to those who are hurting. Uh, there was one interview or at least an attempted interview uh, yesterday. It was a CNN reporter. And it's not peculiar to CNN, but the person had put the mic in the face of an individual who was with her children, and she was angry. She was angry that given all that had happened, uh, that they wanted an interview. They asked her, the interviewer asked her, well, how are you doing? And it seemed like such a foolish question to this woman who says, my children are hungry, they're cold, they're wet. We don't have a home. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know what's going to happen next. And you're asking me for an interview. She was really angry, and she used some choice words that uh, cannot be repeated on the airwaves, first of all, because I wouldn't repeat them, but also the FCC does not allow such words to be said over the public airwaves. Uh, but nonetheless, these are people who are despairing. And to hear that voice of hope being raised, to know that God's people are rallying in the area, are coming from Louisiana and serving those who had served them in many cases during Hurricane uh, Katrina, really demonstrates that there is that capacity in us um, to say the right things, to do the right things, to perhaps hold our peace when um, we don't know what to uh, to say, but to serve in ways that are constructive and bring help and hope. Let's continue to pray. Let's continue to give and trust that God is going to do uh, amazing things uh, for the people in Houston and surrounding areas. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.